I'm Trillia Newbell, and this is Stories of Sacred Endurance, a podcast about preserving in Christ through the ups, downs, challenges, heartbreak, and journey of life. Every episode, we will talk to a fellow saint who can teach us something important about enduring in the faith. Karen Ellis is passionate about theology, human rights, and global religious freedom. She is the director of the Center for the Study of Bible and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. Since 2006, she has collaborated with the Swiss-based organization International Christian Response and travels internationally advocating for global religious freedom. Karen holds a Master of Arts in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary, a Master of Fine Art from the Yale School of Drama, and is a PhD candidate in World Christianity and Ethics at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. Let's welcome Karen Ellis. So, you know, in every black <laughs> church, in every black church, there's a little girl with the pigtails who plays the organ <laughs> or the piano at all the, you know, oh. the little, you know, junior functions. That little girl was me. And uh, I came up in a church um, that was um, very community oriented. Um, you know, we were a strong community. We were very um, socially active. Um, but I did not, I can't honestly say that I believed during that time when I was playing the organ, you know, I think that during sure. that time, God buried a lot of his word in my heart, um, unknowingly through the music that I was playing. Um, and so I guess, you know, I mean, I was, I was living hard, you know, pretty rebellious. I would say I was definitely sane on Sunday, ain't on Monday. Even though we were all up in the church and all our activities were in the church. And so, yeah. um, you know, and I, I, I came to the Lord very late comparatively, um, I guess, to a lot of people um, who grew up in the church. Um, I was 25 when I came to faith in Christ, when I believed, you know, when I genuinely believed, uh, when I genuinely understood who he said he was. And that happened for me um, uh, in April of 1993. I was actually studying theater mm. at the Yale School of Drama. And I had a, a boyfriend at the time who was uh, praying to Jaw. And that guy, <laughs> God, God will use everybody. And he was, and he yeah. was, he was a Rastafarian. <laughs> And uh, he and yeah. he was praying, and I thought to myself, "Well, maybe I should start praying." And God took that yeah. little tiny weird seed, and he started um, he started meeting me in that place. And so, for my mm. entire last year, I was supposed to be in the um, in the uh, in the library. You know, Yale's got these great libraries, so I was supposed to be in the library studying theater and you know drama and whatnot. And I, I was in there reading the books, you know, the world religion books. And um, uh, it was really by the grace of God, because I didn't know the book of John from the book of First John. Uh, but I didn't know anything and um, about the Bible, despite having been having been you know raised in a church situation. And so I started reading. I started reading books on Yoruban religion. I just wanted to know, well, who is God? And there was a little thread that of worry in my own worldview that I had constructed of who God was. And that thread was, wait a minute, if it's one God of many different names, so it's kind of pluralistic, right? If it's one God of many different names, why are the requirements all different? 
And what happens when you mm. get to the end? Does he like, if you're a Mormon, does he pull out the Book of Mormon? Or if you're a, you're a you know, if you're a, um, you know, a, uh, a, a Hindu, does he pull out, you know, the, the, the Bhagavad, you know, what does, what does he do? What does he do? How does he, how does this God of many names reconcile all these different religions? And that bothered me. It really bugged me. And, mm. um, and God took that little thread of worry and he started to unravel this little G God that I had constructed to suit my own purposes and my own desires. And, um, mm. Then, uh, you know, after spending all this time in the library and realizing that a lot of these things didn't make sense when you put them all together, I was sitting in a, um, a service, an Easter service in the African-American Cultural Center. It had nothing to do with the School of Theology. And we were just having a, I just heard about it. Some friends invited me and this, I can still see the guy's face to this day, bless his heart. This brother gave the gospel and it was like, I heard it for the first and the penny mm. dropped and I Trillia I crawled across people in the pew <laughs> and I heard it and I said that's the truth that's the truth and that was really truly mm. by the spirit of God because I had grown up around it my whole life but all that music that had been buried in there mm. all that word that had been buried in my heart, the gospel music, the hymns, um, God used it all. And in that moment, I, I believed. I went down the aisle and I can't wait to see that brother. I never saw him again after that day. <laughs> I can't wait to see him. Wow, I hear stuff yeah. like that all the time yeah. where someone- I know, but I'm gonna again. see wow. him in glory, Lord willing. And um, I'm gonna yes. see him face to face and I'm gonna be like, hey, remember me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be in the buffet line together. I'm persuaded that Glory is like a buffet line, just because my dad loved buffets. <laughs> and we're all going to so get our trays, and we're going to see all these. We're going to be like, oh wow, you know, oh the desserts are over there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I know it's that's that's you know, I know that. And there will be peace. That's a joke. But anyways, yeah, I know. I know I'll see him That's in glory. I know. I'll see him in glory. And um, yeah. And so, you know, my, my disciple, my process of being discipled, I was not discipled for many, many years. And so I, my process of unlearning was very painful. I made extremely foolish choices. I did not how, I didn't know how to move from folly's house to wisdom's house. And I didn't, you know, and I just, I knew, okay, well, I should, you know, probably quit doing this. And I should probably, now that I'm a Christian, I should probably quit doing that. And it was a very moralistic orientation. Um, and God, God raised sure. me up. And after about five or six years of groping around in the dark for learning how to live this new life and doing a lot, causing lots of collateral damage, um, God sent me three women and they discipled me in different areas of my life. and. And the process continues and then, you know, they've changed hands. They pass the baton on to others. And um, now I'm trying to disciple other folks. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's my, my short version. <laughs> Praise God. Well, I just love yeah. that. I love the visual of you crawling over <laughs> to get to the, just to, Oh, it, it just reminds me yeah. of the treasure we have. They're like, and we are to yeah. search for it and, yeah. When people say irresistible grace, 
that's the image that I have in my head. It's like I got, I, I, I gotta get up. Mm. I'm drawn. I'm drawn. Yes. Yeah. That's so good. And, um, and praise God for the three women who discipled Mm -hmm. you. And we really, there's been a theme and I've said this a couple of times in other episodes, but there is a theme in enduring in the faith and it's community and how, Mm -hmm. and we need each other to, to finish this race Mm -hmm. that's set before us. And so I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you had that. Now you you started talking about your fine arts uh, being in the library and Yale and and you've <laughs> taken an interesting journey to where you are right now because you were didn't you do theater as well? Is that correct? I did. Um, I had a career in professional theater and um, I did really well. Yeah, I did yeah. really well. God was very gracious to me. Um, after I left Yale, um, I had, well, I'd been in the business for a number of years before that. Um, let's see, I started professional theater when I was 18 and then I got saved at 25 and then I stayed until I was, I stayed in the business until I was about 30 or 31, um, which was just yesterday. No, I'm joking. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Are we all still about 25, right, that's right. I feel like my dad turned 29, like for 30, 30 years in a row. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, yeah, I, uh, I I did very well in the business. I did everything that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, God just changed my heart. He changed, you know, as I looked more and more into his word, um, my, my desires changed and my priorities changed. And um, I always had a heart for the underground church. And, um, you know, a lot of times people ask me, so do you miss theater? Do you miss the world? And I said, I do miss the community sometimes. I miss the, I miss the craft. I miss making moments, although I still use all my skills when I speak. Um, yeah. But, you know, I actually find the work that I'm doing now more exciting than standing ovations every night at the Kennedy Center. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but... You know, no, it doesn't. Not to a believer, it doesn't yeah, sound crazy at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually a very exciting life. So, um, you know, God has given me very much a, um, a, 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 He's given me a life that matches the intensity of my personality and the intensity mm. of, um, uh, you know, whether I was in theater or whether I was in, uh, you know, just you know, in full time ministry. He's just given me a, a lot of, um, he's really given me a satisfying journey. Um, it hasn't been easy, but it's been satisfying. And um, mm. so, yeah, it makes me wonder like, hmm, what's the next turn going to be? It's going to be as crazy as the last two. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you are currently getting your PhD in virtue ethics at Oxford. What are virtue ethics and how might they relate to to mission studies. So, you know, the, 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 I, I, I know where you got the concept that I was saying virtue ethics, because this has been a developing, um, you know, when you do a PhD program, um, anybody who's done it knows that in the course of your study, it, your, 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 your thesis develops as you go along. And your thesis actually determines what you're going to be um, known for or teaching or the area that you're exploring. When you get so there was a point at which I was exploring virtue ethics, and I think probably you got a hold of a bio that caught me in that phase. <laughs> ah, 
so like, it's evolved. <laughs> yeah, it's evolved. <laughs> we're, in a dynamic, okay. we're in a dynamic situation here, right? You know, things are developing <laughs> so long. <laughs> well, that makes sense because that's mm-hmm. the nature of writing in general. Yeah, that, yeah. It, it is the nature of writing. Yeah. Okay, so what can we learn then um, about enduring in the faith from what you are researching, which would be theological ethics, if anything? What would mm-hmm. you... How could you, what can we learn from that? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I'm learning, I'm learning, you know, is that the God of the Bible can shape how we see the world and our loyalties and define our loyalties. And then that, that should take priority over any earthly lens. I mean, it's, mm. it's, a pre, it's the basic mistake that we constantly make. We're just, we're just bent in that direction. You know, that was the whole Genesis three fall problem. Right. So, you know, who are you who's going to define who's going to define what's right and wrong? Who's going to define who you are as a people? Are we going to define it for ourselves based on our limited vision or on temporal categories? Are we going to get let God define what's right and wrong? We're going to get let God define who we are and inform our identity. Right. So. Right. In terms of defining our loyalties, whether that lens is cultural or ethnic or political, that earthly lens, um, I'm learning that obviously the biblical worldview doesn't render those things unimportant, but what it does is it shapes them and it gives them insight and meaning and purpose that's in harmony with a much bigger picture and a plan that what seems more immediate to us in our limited vision. So it's really, you know, it's, it's not... It's kind of um, reorienting my priorities as I'm looking at um, how people prioritize their identity and their faith and their their knowledge of who God is and how they live their lives based on those things. Um, that's what I'm learning. If anybody else takes that away, that's great. But that's sort of the primary lesson for me right now. Yeah. So in your studies, as you have um, researched missionaries or people who have done missions, and you, I think you mentioned that you... It, it, it's not just Christians necessarily that you're researching. Um, if I if I understood that correctly, is there anyone who has stood out from the that that endured faithful, faithfully through a culture that maybe was difficult or um, but yet they were able to cling to the truth of um, God's word? Or is there any any? stories or anyone that has stood out to you? Oh, sure. Yeah. God's, I mean, God has left his people because he's promised to keep a people for himself, right? Regardless of what we do. And it's been, and him keeping a people for himself is based on his promise to do it and his ability to keep it, not on ours because he knows we can't do it. But um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people dotted throughout history and you know i've just been sort of mining them through records of christians during the 18th and 19th centuries african americans in particular um where you know they're they're recorded that they were aware that they were suffering because they were known as people of god not just for their ethnicity they were suffering for their faith um a lot of people who were invested in the chattel slave system responded um, as an offense to the, you know, they were offended by the gospel that was bound up in preachers and congregants, and they gave them lots of religious freedom restrictions, not just because um, it was preaching a message of 
physical liberation, but because the Bible preached a message of spiritual liberation. Um, there are stories mm. all over the um, all over the the record of American history of um, uh, people who were involved in the system changing because they encountered the genuine Christ, the transformational Christ of the Bible. I mean, I look at people. There's a great record by a woman uh, kept by a woman who's considered one of the best ethno historians, uh, most accurate ethno historians of the uh, 19th century. Her name is. Uh, Victoria Rogers mm-hmm. Albert, and um, uh, sh- that in the House of Bondage, there are dozens of stories of people who were they were faithful to their to the God that they were serving and persecuted because of their faith. Um, in the Caribbean, there are records of patterns of persecution of um, African-led Moravian communities that, in my estimation would meet the standard of people keeping their faith uh, under extremely difficult circumstances, uh, knowing that they were persecuted for their faith. A lot of these folks would meet the standard of what we would call anti-Christian hostility or even um, religious persecution, um, not merely just ethnic persecution. And I think in my research, right. my question is, at what point does church history decides that with redacted and withheld Bibles, stake burnings of local itinerant pastors who are caught for tending their flocks, incarcerations for preaching the unredacted word of God, um, people who are tortured for violating Sabbath laws, illegal worship meetings in hush harbors and conversion stories of the enslaved and the enslaver being treated worse upon their conversion to beat the religion out of them, and all these other markers that are fairly consistent throughout the history in America, um, these are stories of endurance that need to be reclaimed and told. And, you know, at what point do we, you know, include this, include all these cases as long cases of legitimate religious persecution and endurance, not just Mm -hmm. under um, ethnic hostility, but under religious hostility? so yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I've, I've given you a few names um, that you know per, anybody yeah. can go and look up. It's not just, you know, I'm not just researching missionaries. I'm researching um, people who are, um, they're persevering and enduring under what I would call, what we could classify today as anti-religious hostility. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you're doing a lot of research, but have you done any hands-on work with those who are um, suffering from religious persecution? And have, have you had a chance to meet anyone? Or is it mostly um, just learning about their stories in hopes that you would get to share it with others to build awareness? Well, yeah. So my goal, one of my goals at the end of my research is to see if the African-American or the Afro-Caribbean experience can be regarded as a legitimate case of religious persecution. But that grew out of my work with the underground church. Um, I've been working with International Christian Response for about 16 years now, and they are a ministry that, uh, an organization that um, ministers to uh, Christians in hard places, in hard countries, in about 42 different countries around the world. And so one of the reasons that I was interested in this particular ministry and the reason it captured my heart was because I saw so many commonalities between um, the African-American Christian experience 
uh, being an African-American woman myself, descended from slaves, I saw so many similarities between what I see in, uh, in that experience and what I see going on around the globe today. And, you know, Satan only has a handful of tricks. God has limited him to have mm-hmm. a handful of tricks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can see some repeatable patterns of persecution as you look not just around the globe today, but as you look across history, you can see um, from age to age, some consistencies start to emerge. And so based on those consistencies, that's, that was kind of the door into my research to say, why has the African-American experience only been viewed, the African-American Christian experience only been viewed through a lens mostly of uh, civic engagement, right? And changing temporal, um, uh, temporal issues, which is important work. You know, it's definitely an outgrowth of somebody's faith is to want to see um, justice established, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, as it will be in heaven, right? Um, right. But, you know, to actually, you know, it's, it's difficult. You can't, it's, it's difficult to tease out the, uh, the, uh, somebody's ethnicity from their faith, right? So, you know, people in Pakistan. You know, they are Pakistani. They're called Pakistani Christians, right? And their, their environment influences, their, the culture that, in which they live influences their Christianity. So I, I sort of set out just curious to know why in all the records of Christian persecution, um, African-Americans hadn't been included. That bothered me. Hmm. And so, you know, I thought, well, can they be? You know, what are the what are the what are the parameters by which we need to measure those things? And so that's that's where the bulk of my research, that's sort of the um, that's sort of the, the 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 crossroads of where my research meets my history, my own personal history. And um, so, yeah, I have yet to discover whether, you know, an honest academic inquiry, you don't assume that, you know, uh, this is the case. So, you know, I'm trying to find right. what those parameters are. Um, but, you know, certainly on the surface, it appears that a lot of the same dynamics that we see in the African-American experience, the ones I just listed, um, you know, just a few minutes ago, you'll see all those same dynamics today in North Korea, you know, confiscation of Bibles, you'll see it in China, um, destruction of church and church property, um, uh, limiting movement, physical movement to, to spread to, to, um, in in an attempt to contain the spread of the gospel, you know, I mean, it's, it's the, the similarities are striking enough to Mm. make me want to research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how might you encourage the heart of someone who's listening? I, I imagine, and even, even as I listen, I just think, um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's yet another reason to to mourn, I think, in, in a way, to know that our history as an African-American woman isn't documented at all in, um, in so many areas. And yet again, another area. So how might you encourage someone who's listening, who is struggling with the church, um, struggle, when, when I say church, mm-hmm. the big C church, struggling in her faith or his faith, um, and who's who's particularly would be affected by this this knowledge the knowledge of mm-hmm. um, they're already feeling marginalized mm-hmm. and yet again 
um, gaining further information that could could be mm-hmm, disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you encourage our? I would say one of the things that I am learning from our brothers and sisters overseas, and I'm applying to my own life, is that God sees. God sees and God keeps. I just came from a conference where I was able to have dinner with um, Andrew Brunson uh, and his wife, and delightful people, delightful saints of the Lord. Um, And Andrew Brunson, if you don't know his story, he's the pastor who spent two years incarcerated uh, in Turkey uh, for his faith. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, ultimately for his faith, but for trumped-up charges. And um, he, you know, imagine you're in a Turkish prison for two years without access to the outside world. I, I can't even begin to imagine how forgotten a person must feel um, in a situation like mm. that. And I don't know, he didn't share extreme details, but one thing that, you know, and I hesitate because I know that I'm sharing somebody else's story, um, but he did share about how, I appreciated it, he said, I don't have the right Christian answers that you want to hear. It was hard. Mm. It was hard. Um, and God sustained him when he faltered. Um, God sustained him when he did not want to endure. And it reminded me that we have a God who sees and a God who keeps. The people that I'm dealing with in history, they don't know that their stories have been preserved. (laughs) They're sitting at the feet of Jesus right now. They're in that great cloud of witnesses watching us mine history for their stories to learn what we can learn from them. And I trust that because we have a keeping God who sees and who hears that even if our stories never make it into the history books, he's, he sees. And he has a book He has a book that has all the details. And people who, one thing I'm also learning is that the people that I deal with around the world today, the contemporary people, and this this goes for whether you're somewhere else in a hostile country or whether you're on the ground in America, in a place, and you feel like God just doesn't see, you know, you you don't have all the people looking at your story. God is recording this. He's recording. He sees. He sees the sins done against us, and he sees the sins that we do against each other. And those are counted. If you're in Christ, those are all counted against. There will be justice in the end, and there will also be mercy mm-hmm. when those things are thrown <laughs> on him instead of on us. And so I would say on running the race with endurance, feeling forgotten, not seeing yourself in reflected in history, God sees 
And there may well be somebody, mm. if the Lord tarries, decades or maybe even centuries, if we, if we make it that far, <laughs> maybe even centuries from now, coming right. back and mining history for our stories to encourage the rest. So we have a kingdom ball that's being passed forward to us by the saints. We have a responsibility to pass that kingdom ball forward. Our stories of how I got over, remember that old song? Uh, I want mm. to learn from those who have been and are being um, tested with the race for endurance. It's not just about the skills that they use to get over. It's about the things that they believed that shaped their habits, that created the communities to give birth to the skills <laughs> that got them through. That's why I'm looking at virtue yeah. ethics. That's why I'm looking at theological ethics. Um, we have a keeping God. It's him who empowers us to run that race well. And he's promised to keep us. History shows that he's promised to keep us if we stay mm -hmm. close to him. I will no longer let people tell me that keeping the eternal view in view, the eternal in view is wrong or that it's mistaken. I'm not going to let anybody take the sweet by and by from me that helped my ancestors get over. It's a great help. Keeping the sweet by and by in view is what helps us endure the nasty now and now. We need them both. And right. so... These are just some things that I'm learning along the way, some takeaways that are strengthening my faith on the days when endurance is hard. Um, we have a God who sees and we have a God who keeps. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, I believe it's comes out of East Africa, a Swahili word called Ameniana. And the word means God sees me. The Father sees me. There's a wonderful song. If I knew the song better, I'd sing it for you, but I don't know it as well as I should. But it's a beautiful concept that God sees me. And I would say to those who are intending, <laughs> who want to finish well, remember that God sees and God keeps. Thanks for listening to Stories of Sacred Endurance. If you are enjoying it, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help more people discover and hopefully be encouraged by this podcast. And be sure to pick up a copy of my new book, Sacred Endurance, from InterVarsity Press. InterVarsity Press is offering podcast listeners 30% off the book through March 2020. Go to ivypress.com and use the code SACRED30 for 30% off and free shipping on your copy of Sacred Endurance. Thanks for listening.